You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. The last couple weeks, we've been in this new sermon series this fall. We're calling it Life with God, Life with Others, and Life for the World after this long season of pandemic disruption we've all been in. I think that all of us would admit that we're a little bit of spiritually out of shape um, and need to get back into spiritual health and fitness again. And just like anything, when you are out of shape and you want to get healthy, you have to pay attention to your habits. Um, You pay attention to your exercise, your eating, your sleeping. The way that you arrange your life through certain set of practices leads to greater health. Um, And it's the same for your soul. And so what we're doing this fall for these six weeks is we're looking at six different practices that help nurture um, our life with God, our life with each other, and our life for our neighbor, for the world. And so each week we're taking one set, we're taking two for each of those relationships, God, others, and the world. Um, And last week and this week we're focusing on that first relationship, relationship with God. Um, So the first practice, if you remember, class, do you remember? Um, It was be fully present with the church every Sunday. So look, you're doing it right now. Well done. Congratulations. Be fully present with the church every Sunday. That was the first practice. This small practice does amazing things, right? And the second practice that we're talking about today is this one, be fully present with God every day. This practice is about your own personal life with God. Christianity is emphatically a communal, collective Faith. There is no such thing as being a solitary Christian. And yet, it is at the same time a deeply personal faith. It's not private, it's not individualistic, but it is indeed personal. It is about a personal, vibrant, intimate life with God. This is what Jesus has died and risen to give you. So, we're going to talk about that today. So, open your Bibles to Mark 1. In every way, we're seeking to pattern our lives after the life of Jesus. And so let's look at Mark 1 and see how Jesus did this. Verses 35 through 38. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. If y'all were around this summer, you know that um, I took the month of July off. I, by, by spring, I was, I admit I was feeling, after the last couple of years, I was feeling really burned out. I was feeling really tired, really exhausted. And frankly, I was feeling out of touch with God and out of touch with myself. Um, and so the governing elders, the session was really generous in giving me a month of July just to um, kind of get in touch with God and myself again. And um, part of that time I spent at a monastery, um, a place called Holy Cross Abbey in Berryville, Virginia. Um, it's an active monastery, about 12 or 15 monks or so, brothers, who live there on 200 acres in the Shenandoah Valley. And they have a little retreat center there where they invite you to come. And they, they advertise it as, you know, being cut off from civilization no Wi-Fi, no cell service. Um, you're entering into silence, silent retreat. And so I thought, you know, no problem. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an introvert. Um, I'm, I live with, 
with many people in my house. I'm always craving for time alone. You know, I have a stack of books I wanted to read. Easy peasy, right? So I got there the first day. I got there around lunchtime and had lunch with the other retreatants. There were about 10 of us, and we ate in total silence. Um, and after that, it was time to do nothing. And so I sat, sat in my chair in my room for a while and read a couple chapters in a book that I brought and went out walking in the valley, looked at my watch. It had been two hours, three days to go. A couple more hours, drip. I mean, the time y'all was just dripping by. I was starting to feel anxious. I was starting to feel nervous. My heart was racing a little bit. How am I going to do this? And I, I went back into the retreat house to get a glass of water. And as I passed the little, the little office that they have there, I just happened to look in and I saw on the desk a router. <laughs> I'm very, very, very embarrassed to admit this to you. But I went into the office picked up the router, looked at the Wi-Fi code, pulled out my phone, booted it up, checked my email, checked the news headlines, checked the weather, and felt horrible. <laughs> I suddenly realized I am an addict. My soul is this fritzed out, this dry, this thirsty. I can't even go a few hours. I'm a pastor! I can't even go a few hours in stillness and peace. I share this embarrassing story with you, and I really am embarrassed. Some of you have your mouths gaped open like, this is my pastor? Yes, it is. Um, I just want you to know, I am with this in you. Um, all of us have been deeply infected by the continuous distraction and chaos that is our modern Western culture and that has rendered us all nearly incapable of being still. Um, some of us can remember what it was like to be bored. If you're like 40 and up, you maybe remember that. Like what it was like to stand in a line at a coffee shop, five people in front of you, and you just had to stand there. <laughs> so weird, right? Some of us remember what it was like to sit in an airport lounge waiting for a bus or waiting for a plane with nothing to do but kind of stare at the wall. You remember what it was like to be bored? But no more. Since 2007, when Steve Jobs paraded out the first iPhone and launched the revolution that is our digital age upon the world, everything has dramatically changed. The insatiable demands of the digital world are constantly sucking our attention at every turn. And I want you to be clear, I am not a Luddite. I, um, I actually love technology and I wouldn't want to go back, most of the time wouldn't want to go back to pre-digital age. There are many, many pros, and yet when it comes to the health of our souls, there are many, many dangers. Time with our thoughts, time in self-reflection, time to be fully present to God, to others, to ourselves. All of this has nearly eroded completely away, right? There's so few boundaries in our lives. We are accessible all the time. Our lives are filled with noise and information incessantly. This, the great spiritual teachers have been telling us for centuries that one of the great tools of the spiritual life is our attention, the capacity to attend fully to God and to others. So what does it say about the fact that the average adult attention span is now 8.5 seconds, which is shorter than that of a goldfish? This is a spiritual crisis, noted by many, Christian and non-Christian. Um, Andrew Sullivan, a great social critic, um, British-American journalist, says this, the new epidemic of distraction is our civilization-specific weakness. 
And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shape shift under the pressure. The threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget we have a soul. Or a spiritual writer that I love, Father Ronald Rollheiser, says this, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. So the question is, how can we find help and life in the middle of the chaos that is modern society? Is there something we can learn from Jesus? Is there something we can learn about his way, the way he lived his life, that can help us practice spiritual health and flourishing in the age that we live in? I believe there is. So let's look at our text together, Mark 1. If you look with me, if you have your Bibles and you look at Mark 1, verses 14 through 34 is actually one long section that describes Jesus' first day on the job as Messiah. And it was a big day. So if you look, starting in verse 14, he got up early, he preached in the synagogue, uh, he called his first disciples, he drives out some demons, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then it says the whole town comes to the house where he's staying, and he heals people late into the night. I mean, talk about an exhausting day, right? Sunset to way into late, probably past midnight. But then it says this in the very next verse, 35, very early in the next morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, I don't know about you, but after a day like that, I would have slept in, gone for a light jog, and had brunch with my friends. But Jesus instead is up early, out the door, finding this quiet, solitary place to be with God, his Father, where he can pray. Now, the word there for solitary place um, is this word, this Greek word, eremos. Kids, can you say that with me? Eremos. Let's say that. Eremos. Okay, good job. You know Koine Greek. Well done. It can be translated a lot of different ways. Here's some of them that you'll see it appear in the New Testament. Desert, wilderness, desolate place, solitary place, lonely place, quiet place. I love that one. And Jesus' relationship with the Aramos is quite a common topic. It comes up a lot in the Gospels. In fact, if you look at the beginning of the chapter in Mark 1, after Jesus' baptism, it says in verse 12, 13, that he was driven into the what? The Aramos, the wilderness, for 40 days where he was tempted by the devil and strengthened by the Spirit. So get this. He was in the Aramos for a month and a half. He comes back for one day of work, and he goes straight back out into the Aramos again. That's how much time Jesus liked to spend there. In Mark 6, when the disciples were dead tired after a few weeks of work with Jesus, it says in verse 31, young parents will relate to this, so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. You ever feel that way? Jesus says to his disciples, come with me yourselves to a quiet place, a ramos. Get some rest. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus went to the Eremos no less than nine times. In Luke 5, it says the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed. Jesus was coming, becoming this major celebrity, and everybody wanted a piece of him. Everybody wanted to be near him. And then what does it say right after that in verse 16? Jesus often withdrew to Eremos, the lonely places, and prayed. I mean, so what we see is that for Jesus... Time spent in the Aramos, the solitary place, the quiet place, was actually a central core practice, habit of his life. In fact, John Mark Comer, who's written some great stuff on this, says that if you could track Jesus' life on two axes like this, 
then the more busier and demand and more famous and popular that Jesus became, the more we see him withdrawing again and again to the Aramos, to the lonely place. So you can see where I'm going with this. Do you guys? That if being a Christian means being a disciple, and if being a disciple means patterning your life after the life of Jesus, then what does that mean for you? It means that withdrawing again and again to a quiet place, to a desolate place to be with God is going to be need to be a central practice of your life. And actually, I would even say this, the more busy you are, the more frenetic your life becomes, the more intense because of all the demands that our modern society and technology has created, the more, not less time, you should be spending in the Aramos. Now, you already may be protesting, running through excuses in your mind. You know, you don't know how busy my life is. I'm a stay-at-home parent. I have a really demanding job where I have to start early in the morning. You know, I'm an extrovert. I don't need time alone, or I have ADHD. I can't do time alone. But look, stop. Think about this, y'all. Jesus, the Son of God, who I promise you was busier than any of you, and I promise you had a more important job than any of you. Saving the world. Anybody got a more important job than that in the room? I don't think so. He needed time, consistent time in the solitary place. Don't you think that you might need it too? So why do we need it? Why is it so important? Two main reasons, I think. The first is because there in the solitary place, we encounter God. Sometimes um, the word solitude sounds scary to modern people, right? You, you, you think of like solitary confinement or kids, you might think of your mom and dad sending you to your room to be by yourself, right? But in the Christian tradition, solitude is not isolation. It's not the same as loneliness. Um, Richard Foster in his great book, Celebration of Discipline, writes this, loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment, Ruth Haley Barton, wonderful spiritual writer of our day, says that in solitude, we do not walk into emptiness, we walk into fullness because there dwells the presence of God. And so the key element is that solitude is not isolation because you are not alone. It's intentional time with God. God is present there. Jesus went again and again to the Aramos, not because he was an introvert and he needed some peace and quiet, but it was because he was so thirsty to commune with God, his Father, and to draw the power and the love that he needed for his life in ministry. So solitude is indeed, um, it can indeed be a place. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But more so, it is a place in your soul that is set apart for God and God alone when you unplug and withdraw from the noise of personal interactions and busyness and constant stimulation. It's a time to set aside where you can be fully present to God, to be available, to hear God, to speak to God, to receive from God, to surrender to God. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite writers, writes often about this. Here's what he says. Without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. Did you hear that? This is not very nuanced. It is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if you do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to him. He's being very blunt. He's saying, if you don't set aside time to be alone with God, your relationship with God will wither on the vine. It's just like any relationship in life. It's no different. You need time alone 
for that relationship to flourish. Some of you are married, and you know that if you're married and you never have any time alone with your spouse, no time to ever talk in private, no time to share your deepest thoughts and fears, no time for you know, lovemaking, physical intimacy, if you never have any time for these things, a place of personal attentiveness to one another, your marriage will die. And it's the same with our life with God. Jesus lived this life of ongoing, deep communion with the Father, and this is his invitation to us. That's the first reason we need it, to encounter God. The second is that the Ramos is a place where we encounter ourselves, where we encounter ourselves. You know, in the Mark text, the disciples go looking for Jesus, and when they find him, they exclaim, and again, parents, you can probably relate to this, everyone is looking for you! Everybody's looking for you! Jesus, I mean, they're like, Jesus, that was amazing last night, you healed all those people! Man, you gotta get down there, like, Jerusalem Times has sent the reporters, like, they wanna interview you, everybody's so hyped, you gotta get down there, Jesus, they're asking for us now! And what does Jesus say? Let's go somewhere else so I can preach there also because that's why I've come. Some of you are therapists and you would say that Jesus is demonstrating incredible self-differentiation. He's showing amazing boundaries, right? He is not drawn in by their anxiety. Uh, His own ego is not sucked in by their effusive demands. He's coming out of the Eremos with crystal clarity about who he is, his identity. He's grounded. He's centered. He's deeply in touch with God. He knows what he's supposed to do. He knows what he's supposed to say no to. He knows what he's supposed to say yes to. He knows clearly who he is and what he is to do. And this is another vital reason we need the Eremos, because we all need to live out of our true self. And what is that self? It's the place where you are in union with the God who loves you. We spend so much time in our lives defining ourselves by the false self. Nowen often talked about this, that we all define ourselves by what I do, what I have, what other people think of me. We're always defining ourselves in this way. But in the Eremos, all that stuff is stripped away. The scaffolding of your identity falls away. Nobody's there There's no friends to talk to. There's no calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to, no books to distract. There you are, just you, naked, broken, vulnerable, yourself before God. And now one says this is in this nothingness, I have to face in my solitude. Sometimes it is so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends or my work or some distraction so I can forget my nothingness. This is what happened to me in the monastery. Right? I was faced with all the things that I carry under the surface of my life, all my anxieties, all my fears, all my shame. I was faced with it once, all those distractions and constant activity that normally keep me from facing the truth about myself. Suddenly, there I am. Now it says sometimes, kids, you'll like this, that when, when, you get, when you actually are able to get into a place of solitude and truly center yourself on the person of God and truly be yourself before him, your mind begins to jump around like monkeys in a banana tree. It's called monkey mind. Just imagine a tree full of monkeys jumping around. That's what happens often when you get finally in solitude is your, all of your anxieties and all of your fears and all of your doubts and all of your fantasies and all of your neuroses all begin jumping around in your mind and you feel like, I can't take this. And Newman says, if you can stay there. 
and truly face your shadow, your full darkness, your false self, all the ways that you define yourself by the wrong things, then that becomes a place of transformation where you are finally ready to receive the grace of God for you. Because it's only in that place of solitude when all of those false selves are stripped away that you can know, okay, this is who I am. I am not what I do. I am not what I have. I am not what others think of me. This is who I am. Standing, sitting before this God and what this God says about me, you are the beloved. You are the beloved in Christ. Only in the place of a Ramos. And this is why Nowen says solitude is the furnace of transformation. It is the place of conversion where the old false self dies and the new self is available to God to be transformed as we return again and again to him. Again, one more Nowen quote. Solitude is the place of great struggle and the great encounter. The struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the living God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. Only in that place where it's just you and God, do we face all that is false in us. And we then can receive and turn towards the one who gives us our true self, and that is that you are the God's beloved in Jesus Christ. Out of that place, we can then leave the Aramos to live in freedom. So, do you see how vital this is? You've got a choice. You can live without the Aramos, without intentional time set apart with God, and I promise you will increasingly feel distant from God and distant from yourself. You won't know who you are. You won't do healthy self-differentiation. You'll get sucked into other people's demands and anxieties all the time because you'll need their approval so desperately. You know, you, often you'll turn to your escape of choice, whether it be alcohol or Netflix or porn or whatever the next fix is. Without the Aramos, the path is spiritual oblivion. But with the Aramos, with intentional set-apart time of solitude with God, you slow down, you come into the present, you meet with God, you sit in his presence, you bring your true self before him in all of your nakedness and brokenness, you receive his grace, you get out from the tyranny of demands, of successes and failures and the opinions of others, and you find in Jesus Christ your place of freedom once again. So what kind of life do you want to live? So let me just end with a few practicals, how we can practice solitude. Because I know it's hard. It's really hard. Well, let me just make a few tips. First of all, start with where you are. You know, some of you are just like, I can't do this. You know, I've got too much going on. I'm an extrovert. Can I bring some friends with me? No, you can't. Um, here's what I would encourage you. You don't need to start this with like a 24-hour retreat with monks, right? <laughs> um, you can begin... Begin with where you are. Begin with five minutes, 10 minutes. Begin with just when you walk to your car to go to work, before you turn the ignition and turn on the radio, sit in silence for two minutes and meditate on the love of God for you. That's how easy this can begin. The point is setting aside time to be alone, to turn the noise down, to be available to hear God's voice. And depending on what your stage is, your capacity will be different. Some of you are retired and you can actually spend a leisurely hour with God every day. But others of you, you have a house full of kids and demands and you can barely find 10 minutes. It's okay. Be kind to yourself. Don't compare yourself to anybody else. Just begin with who you are. God's inviting you. Kids, hey, I'm not just talking to the adults here. I'm talking to you. That even from a very, do you know that Jesus said, let the little children come to me? 
It means that every day you can come to Jesus. When you go to bed at night, just before you fall asleep, you could just say something like, Jesus, thank you that you're with me. Keep me safe in your arms. Already, so small as you are, you can begin to nurture your relationship with God. Okay, start with where you are. Second, identify a place. I've said that it's not really a a physical place. It's more of a place in your soul. And yet, a lot of people do benefit from having a specific place where they meet with God, like a favorite chair or a room or maybe a park where you can sit with the windows rolled down, a place that is quiet and peaceful that you can return to again. And the one strong exhortation I would make to you is that you would not bring your phone to that place, as I found to my great failure. Third, think small, medium, and large, or tall, venti, and grande, if you like Starbucks, whatever. Um, you know, when I was growing up, quiet time, having a quiet time was a big thing. You ever, any of your children of the 80s kind of remember that, having your quiet time every day? Um, and I don't really hear people use that language much anymore. I think we all sort of think that sounds cheesy. I just, you know, I'm just sort of an unashamed fan of the quiet time, and I just think we need to bring quiet times back like it's 1992. Um, that that's like the medium, the, the, the medium time with God, where you just show up with God every day, whether it's 15, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, you just show up with God every day and are fully present, ready to receive from him. That's the medium time. But you also need small times. And what I mean by that is Jesus lived in constant communion with God, his father, even when he was in the midst of big crowds. And so you can take little small times. So I set a little alert on my phone that goes off at 10 and 2, and I stop, and I take three deep breaths, and I just say, Lord, I surrender to you. Ten seconds. Often I'll stop at noon or before I go to bed, work through the Lord's Prayer, work through Psalm 23. With these things, you can actually be in the, in the middle of the, the, crowd, the most crowded room and yet find a deserted place in your soul where you can meet with God in the secret place, and he feeds you as you tune your heart back to him. Those are the small places. And then finally, the large places. You know, Ruth Haley Barton has this great image where she says, you know, if you imagine a jar of river water that's full of dirt and sediment, very murky, and you set that jar on the table, and after a few hours, all the dirt just settles to the bottom. Sometimes your soul is so full of silt that you need a longer time for all that dirt to settle and for your soul to be clear again. That's what I needed at the monastery. Some of us need that. So carve a couple times a year to spend a full morning or a full day or even a full week my mentor, John Stott, every, he did this for 70 years. He would take one hour a day, one day a month, one week a year. One day, hour a day, one day a month, one week a year. This is what formed him into the spiritual giant that he became. Finally, focus on experience over information. Our tradition is very information heavy as Presbyterians. We focus on you know, studying, learning about the Bible and about theology, and that's all great. I'm a big fan of that. And yet, in the Aramos, this space is not mainly to learn about God or to study God or to think about God, but to actually experience God and encounter him, to be with him, to surrender to him. If you do all the talking and learning and thinking, you never get internally quiet enough to hear God's voice and face your own darkness and let God address you in his grace. And so I would strongly encourage you, go heavy on the silence. If you got 10 minutes, spend half of it in total silence, sitting in the presence of God, maybe using one verse, be still and know that I am God. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Just take that one verse and just repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. 
and receive the love of God for you. Major on the silence. When you use scripture, don't take big chunks and pull out your commentaries. Read. There's a time for that. Here, read slowly, meditatively. Stop at a word or phrase and just sit with it. Invite God to speak to you through it. Journaling can be a great help in attending to the work of transformation that God wants to do in you. We have many guides to help you to what to do in your solitude, and I'll be sending those out this week on my Thursday email. So focus on experience over information. So let me close, friends. Here is our second practice. Be fully present to God every day. Without it, the spiritual life is impossible. Without it, we will be distant from God and from ourselves. Without it, our distractions will wear us into spiritual oblivion. Life that is truly life is life that is lived in union and communion with God. And here's the good news. Jesus Christ has already won this for you. He has died, he's risen, he's reconciled you to God. You are one with God in Christ. The spirit dwells in you. You are one with him. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to strive for it. Your union with God is a fixed reality. But as Dallas Willard often reminds, grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. Just like any relationship, communion takes work. Communion takes practice. Communion takes attention and intention and time and care. And this is not an invitation to discipline and striving. It is an invitation into freedom and into life. As I found in that monastery, as the dirt settled down, as the scaffolding fell off in the place of quiet, I finally was able to return to myself, return to the God who loves me. I was finally able to return home. That's the invitation to you. Come home. Let's pray.